When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the autumn of 1989, I was travelling in the Indian Himalayas and went to the former British hill station of Mukhargan. It's a ramshackle village set at 6,000 feet and lies in a forest of pines and cedars on a ridge above the main town of Dharamsala. Behind all this, rising steeply to over twice that height, is the majestic Doladar range. By sheer coincidence, I arrived on the day the Dalai Lama had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Scores of friendly, smiling Tibetans dressed in brightly coloured traditional clothes line the road by a ceremonial arch decked out in multicoloured material. Everyone was excited and stood behind a white line specially painted for the event, and most of them held bunches of marigolds. Others clutched sticks of smouldering, pungent incense. The crowd had waited several hours because nobody knew exactly when the Dalai Lama would arrive from Delhi. Everyone wanted to welcome their spiritual leader home and, if possible, catch a glimpse of him as his motorcade flashed by. So began my fascination with this unique exiled culture. For the past 35 years, it has struggled to maintain its way of life outside Tibet. After the Chinese invasion in 1950, Tibetans tried to adapt to the new regime, but realising their culture might not survive, in 1959, the Dalai Lama and a small group of friends and family fled to India, followed later by thousands of others. The Indian government welcomed them and offered them land in Dharamsala, where they set up schools, monasteries and a government in exile. Today, the Chinese still occupy their country and Tibetans continue to be denied the right to live freely in their own land. The exile community seems to be thriving, at least by Indian standards and on the face of it appear successful. They're still, however, refugees and as such are tolerated but not always understood. Although they maintain a wonderfully cheerful and optimistic outlook, the longer they're forced to remain in exile, the greater chance they have of losing their culture. I wanted to find out how they see their present situation and their future, either in or outside Tibet. Because education is an area where their culture can thrive, I visited the Tibetan Children's Village, a school set up in 1960 to care for and educate orphan children. Today, all young Tibetans attend this school where their language, culture and history are emphasised. This is quite different from local Indian schools where the focus is on competition and academic achievement. As many Tibetans still flee their country and arrive in India each year, foreign aid and personal sponsorship continue to play an important role in setting up similar schools wherever exiles settle. The Dalai Lama himself feels that education plays a very important role in maintaining Tibetan culture. Uh, education, the way of education, educate his people from the, uh, right from the beginning, from the childhood, is very, very important. It is not sufficient to simply give information, but we must 
cultivate in the in the minds of children is it that the uh, the deeper value of human being and that means the compassion tolerance uh, sense of involvement is respect others right these are the basic human as values so irrespective whether believer or non believer these basic human good quality uh, must make clear in the minds of children these are the real sources of good future foundation of the good future or happy future education alone uh, no guarantee sometimes is the uh, what's the good i mean what say good good education but is a uh, very much uh, mental unrest getting more information you see more things as a result is more sort of uh, what say desire or certain is a different uh, inner feeling so is more conflict sometimes it develops so another word education is something like instrument whether that instrument uh, used uh, for constructive or destructive not very sure this is very much depend on the user that means the human oneself or its its own motivation much depend on the motivation i also spoke to rinchen kando who is the minister of education in the exile government about her emphasis in education well you know when i talk about education sometimes i ask myself what is education of course education means many things you talk to people and we often say he or she is very highly educated and we often say that because that person has a very high degree in something of course that is also very true that the further you study the more knowledgeable you become i believe in that as well and i wish that our children go studying as far as they can and i would like to do anything to provide them with the opportunity but the most important thing to me is that the education should shape the person into a good human being if the education is focused on shaping the children into proper and good human being then i think that prepares a very good soil for any more good things to grow so i believe that i have to work very hard to create a atmosphere for the children where they see they hear and they learn things that would shape them into good human beings and then also being in an exile and looking after the education of a group of exiled children who believes very, very much in their culture in their country which is not free which is not in our hands right now but they believe that it's going to be free for them one day and they also believe very strongly that uh, we have a very ancient and a very valuable culture and uh, it's not only because they believe or i believe or we believe but it has been it's it has been proved by the world that the tibetan culture is one of the oldest and uh, that old cultures are it's very important for the world to save the old cultures therefore going back to the field of education i feel that our children should be given 
as much traditional education as possible combined with modern education so that when they grow up, they know who they are, they have their identity. At the same time, they are prepared to face the modern world. So this is the type of education I'm looking for. As you spend time among Tibetans, you realize that Buddhism is an integral part of their life. I found it sad and disturbing to hear how few monasteries remain in Tibet. Before the Chinese invasion, there were thousands of them with a large proportion of the population devoted to the monastic way of life. Everywhere you go in Dharamsala, you see long lines of brightly coloured prayer flags suspended in tall trees or on rooftops. These flap in the wind and are believed to raise the prayers inscribed on them. In the centre of MacLeod Gunge, there is a six-foot-high prayer wheel, a huge wooden cylinder containing thousands of prayers. With each rotation, a bell is rung, and throughout the day you hear the great wheel being set in motion. Another common sight to see is both old and young walking round a mile-long path called the Lingkor that surrounds the Dalai Lama's residence. Many are repeating the holy mantra Om Mani Padme Om, or revolving their own handheld prayer wheels. As they walk along the Lingkor, they spin hundreds of prayer wheels that are set in an alcove, and these they rotate till all are turning together, releasing their blessings into the world. In fact, everywhere you go, you see and hear Tibetans practicing their religion. Shaven-headed monks and nuns wearing maroon robes regularly mingle with the rest of the population. In shops, restaurants and homes, there are small altars, some with butter lamps flickering and always a picture of His Holiness the Dalai Lama smiling out at you. At the main temple, you'll see devotions performed throughout the day as I did one morning when I came across a woman in her 70s bending, kneeling and stretching herself flat on the floor in front of the Dalai Lama's ceremonial throne. She rose, hands together in a prayerful attitude and repeated the whole procedure dozens of times. There are a large number of monasteries in the Dharamsala area. Many have the same names as the original ones in Tibet. I asked Bonnie, an American who has been a Buddhist nun for 20 years, to tell me about them and if the traditions are being preserved. Yes, Namgyal Monastery was, prior to 1959, part of the portal of palace where the Dalai Lama lived. It was his personal monastery. And their discipline and their practice is very good. It's really an example for others to see. That's being very well preserved. And every month, according to the lunar month, there's a different ritual performed in accordance with the practices done by Namgyal Monastery under the direction of the Dalai Lama. That's a wonderful example to all of us. They preserve the tradition of making sand mandalas, of studying the texts, of performing rituals, and of serving the community in general. We have another large monastery here that was originally in Amdo, Kiti Gompa, under the direction of Kiti Rinpoche. And that monastery now has 200 monks who have come from Tibet to further their studies. It's also a very functional monastery, serving to educate the monks so that they can eventually go back to Tibet and serve the community. We also have two nunneries here. One older one, which was established very early on when the Tibetans first settled in McLeod Gunge, and that's Gendon Choling. 
And I'm very happy to say not only has it preserved the older way of life in Tibet, namely that the nuns do rituals and they do many prayers for others when needed, but they've also started to study different academic texts and great treatises, which was not done in Tibet. So they have become more progressive and educated in their approach. And there's another nunnery which was just recently set up called Dromaling. It's a little bit outside of Dharamsala, near the Norbalinka Center, or the New Tibetan Cultural Center, and it has 130 nuns, all come from Tibet, who are receiving the traditional monastic education that is normally only given to monks. So we see some very important aspects of the Tibetan culture being preserved, as well as the tradition being upgraded for women in general. One of the most strange and fascinating sights to see at the monastery complex outside the Dalai Lama's residence is monks and nuns debating. Your senses are bombarded by perhaps 200 monks and a few nuns shouting and clapping their hands. I had no idea what this was all about, so I asked Kelsang Wangdo, a recently converted nun from Switzerland, to explain what was happening. It's very difficult actually, to explain because um, it's all done in Tibetan. So to translate into English is, is quite difficult. It's almost impossible, really, because the English is very wordy and, and the Tibetan isn't. But basically, the idea is to train one's mind, train one's logic, yeah, logical thinking. And um, the reason for that is that Buddha's teachings are all based on logic. And the Buddha himself here said that um, one shouldn't take his teaching for granted, I mean, just because he's a nice person or something, and for some, you know, funny reason, one shouldn't, so one should check up on what he said. So, training one's mind in logic in the way they, they do while debating helps to, um, later on reading the texts, one has some sort of logical um, background, like a lot of way of thinking, uh, has developed a certain way of thinking, and that helps to analyze the, the, the scriptures. And by analyzing them, then one is really able to, you know, to develop a faith and to practice them. Then the basic for the debate itself, there's a certain style. I mean, one, there is a person who, who answers and a person who asks the question. The person who answers has to sit down and the person who questions, he's standing up. And there's a certain style of doing it, which is not really, hasn't much meaning, but it's like clapping one's hand. I personally find it makes him more powerful, you know, like the person who has to ask the question has to be very self-confident, you know, because he has to try to defeat the one who's answering. So clapping the hand gives it a whole thing more power. Someone gets some sort of more strength, more, I don't know, force, some sort of force behind it. So clapping one's hand helps, you know, getting this force and getting this self-confidence. Tenzing Nari Rinpoche, the Dalai Lama's youngest brother, was brought up as a monk or lama and is believed to be a reincarnated lama and teacher. Although he no longer wears monk's robes, he still has many insights into the monastic life. I asked him about debating. Every subject or topic is forged to get the true meaning through debating. This is one tradition that Tibetan Buddhists excel. So, so that's part of that. That's what they're trying to do. Because for an outsider, it yeah. could seem uh-huh. uh, if you didn't understand. Yeah, it, they look very agitated. The ego was. Uh-huh. Uh... Yes, that's true. That's true. Yes, 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 yes. No, the tendency is there. No, I openly tell people that you know this debating system that we have 
actually promotes ego if one is not careful. And what do you feel is really the real purpose of, of debating? Just as scientists work in the lab with experiments, so debating it's with words you're trying to get uh, understand particular concepts, particular topics by examining the definitions, by examining how many categories there are. So it's a very thorough, close study. Yeah, debate becomes a tool. Apart from debating, there are daily pujas or prayer meetings held in most of the monasteries, especially on important days such as full or new moon or the Dalai Lama's birthday. It's quite an experience to attend morning prayers. Hundreds of monks chant in dimly lit halls and sit cross-legged in long rows facing each other. The atmosphere is very friendly and you'll always be served butter tea, provided you've remembered to bring your own cup. In every monastery, there is an all-pervasive smell of soot and rancid butter from years of burning ceremonial butter lamps, which adorn the altars in front of statues of Buddha. The first time I went to a puja, early one morning, I was surprised to see monks that looked no older than six or seven. They were being dealt with very patiently by older monks as their concentration flagged after an hour or more of chanting. As an outsider, it's hard to know what's really going on, so I asked Nari Rinpoche to tell me about the monasteries outside Tibet and if he thought they were keeping Tibetan Buddhism alive. Yeah, we have these big buildings, very, very colourful, flashy. Whatever the money people give to the monasteries, monasteries make it try to be very, very fancy. And in some monasteries there's hardly any learning. And uh, then even if the learning do exist, but then it, the tendency is to become a mere academic knowledge. The knowledge is not infused with their spiritual development. And we get monks with big egos, and monks with, uh, you know, big egos who wants to win the arguments all the time, and they want to dominate a conversation. Big egos. They are wearing the robe of uh, order, which has sworn to fight the three afflictive emotions. But what we see is a celebrate, celebrating those three afflictions. Uh, attachment, aversion and ignorance. These are the three diseases in Buddhism. These are the three mental stains from which all anguish stem from. If the monasteries and nunneries are composed of people who can merely wear the robe and who can chant a little bit, and not really leading a spiritual life or the spirit of Buddhism, then I don't think they have a you know, right to exist. Because I think it's deceiving people. Uh, to be a monk, you know, according to our tradition, it calls for a lot of study. So the earlier a person becomes, he has more time to study. So probably I would prefer a monastery which is composed of people who have become monks at a later life and who have really developed renunciation rather than, you know, uh, scholaristic qualities. Probably it's better. Now, I'm not advocating we have, let's have, you know, 
dumb monks and nuns. I'm not advocating that. But in, in search of scholarly excellence, I think we are sacrificing something. Now, among the scholars who really excel, you find people who are egomaniacs. And they still wear the monk's robe. But it's self-defeating purpose again. So I think uh, monasteries and nunneries, I think, should be for people who have really developed or who have really cultivated renunciation. When the Dalai Lama won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989, it brought the Tibetan issue to the attention of the world. Lasung Siring, a publisher of Tibetan writers and former leader of the Tibetan Youth Congress, told me how he viewed the event. At the time His Holiness was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, there was tremendous feeling of pride and joy among all Tibetans everywhere. People inside Tibet risked their lives to celebrate. Some wrote poems which may have resulted in the loss of their uh, freedom. And here in exile, uh, for the first time in 30 years, we had something to celebrate. All other occasions were observations of suffering and of sorrow and of loss. But this, for the first time, was a celebration. Yet, I at the same time went to Norway to make it known, to take the opportunity to state that the West cannot wash its hands of the Tibetan problem by giving the Dalai Lama the Nobel Peace Prize. The question of Tibet is not the question of the power and position and privilege of the Dalai Lama. It is the question of the freedom and survival and the basic human rights of an entire nation. And the West has not done its share in the suffering of the Tibetan people by awarding the Dalai Lama the Nobel Peace Prize. And it should not be seen as such. Bonnie, the American nun, feels the strength of the Dalai Lama lies in his policy of maintaining a totally non-violent approach. Having become a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, he has attracted the attention of many world leaders and many ethnic and religious groups due to his effectiveness with this policy and this policy of peaceful conciliation has been adopted by other circles as well. The Minister of Education, Renshen Kando, had this perspective. I think that was one of the most wonderful moments for the Tibetan people because I think that made us, the Tibetan people, realize that there are people in the world who really see the truth. There are people in this world who believe in peace. Therefore, they chose His Holiness to be one of the Nobel Peace Prize winners. So not only because he being our leader and he receiving the prize, but it gave us a general inspiration about a better future for the world. Then, of course, in particular, for our issue, Tibetan cause itself, it was a wonderful thing to happen because many more people came to know about the Tibetan issue, who the Dalai Lama is, what he stands for. All these count, count a lot for us, for the Tibetan cause. So I would say that this was wonderful in all these ways. The international attention brought about by the Peace Prize has led to a noticeable increase in the facilities for tourists. 
Since 1989, when I first visited McLeod Gunj, more and more hotels, guest houses, restaurants, and video parlors are in evidence. On the face of it, this is a good thing, but tourism brings its own problems, especially to a small village with inadequate water and sewage arrangements. Western cultural ideas and Indian tourists with different values inevitably help to erode the already threatened culture. Tibetans are being influenced by the more materialistic Western outlook, and over the past five or six years, this exposure has been on the increase. Kelsang Wangdo, the Swiss nun, sees this as a problem. I mean, it's a problem because um, we're just seeing here around Dharamsala. Uh, since the has got the Nobel Peace Prize, lots of Westerners have rise because how this became very popular in the West. And then, well, the response from the Tibetan side was that, you know, they have lots of restaurants and lots of uh, movie theatres, you know, to entertain the Westerners and good hotels and everything. And so the, the monks, they see all these things, you know, and being before in Tibet, they've been in complete isolation, you know, and very conducive conditions not to be distracted by anything outside. Now there are lots of theatres and, and lots of, you know, these kind of things that they see. That's just one factor that actually the Tibetans themselves, they establish these, these things. But then also they see, you know, Westerners, some of them very good Westerners, I mean, very sincere, and they want to help the Tibetans. But there's some who just come to India to hang out and smoke and, you know. Uh, and I think, well, I'm not sure the monks have so much contact with them, but then the lay people do, you know, some young Tibetan people. And they hang out with those people, and they don't go to school, and they smoke and drink and all these things. And uh, that's very, I mean, it very much harms the lay community if many young, I, mean, I don't know how many young Tibetans do that, but there are few, and it destroys their very strict morality, which they, they were able to preserve actually until now, you know. They have, I mean, they're very good in, in preserving morality. That gets a little bit, you know, looser, looser, looser. And then the lay community also having contact with the monks, now the Tibetan lay community, they influence the monks, you know, also. So, well, actually, I mean, Tourism, if it's just if it's people who are sincere, you know, and they know how to dress in Dharamsala with their monks and nuns and everything, then that's fine. But if it's just tourists who actually ignore, you know, that there's a different culture and this culture has different rules and, you know, that if it's homeless, council shouldn't wear shorts and all these things, you know. So if they ignore that, I think there's harm, you know, really. Nai Rinpoche feels the problem can be handled. If a rock, it's very, very strong in a stormy sea. So that rock will never be sort of shaken by the sea. So in the same way, if our institutions are strong in this regard, monasteries, if they are really solid, no amount of you know tourists coming and going will affect that function of the monastery. So it all depends on how firm and strong and you know deep rooted our system is in regard to monasteries. The rise in world awareness has also brought increased aid for the Tibetans. This has created a widening discrepancy in living standards between the relatively wealthy Tibetans and poorer Indians, and was a contributing factor in the riot that occurred between the two communities in 1994. Things have calmed down to a degree, but tensions still exist. The Indians feel the Tibetans are receiving more than their fair share of foreign aid, and there's a vast gap in the communication between the two cultures who live side by side. As the years go by, it is inevitable that changes will occur. Tourism and foreign aid help and hinder at the same time. I asked Nari Rinpoche what he thought about the future for Tibetans. I think the future of Tibet will mainly depend how things will go in China. 
if the Chinese system uh, fails, if there is chaos in China, then I think there is a quick transition to a better future for Tibetans. Then, uh, if the Chinese still hold on, then I think it's difficult. But then, of course, it left to the you know future generations to struggle. You know, people in occupied Tibet, and then uh, those of us who are in exile. It all depends how they will handle. But I think it will be extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. And then the most important thing is unity of the Tibetans, be it in occupied Tibet or be it among the exiles. I think it's paramount importance. Bonnie, the American nun, doesn't think Tibet will ever be a free country unless something dramatic happens. Because the majority of people living in Tibet now are Chinese. And the Chinese are not going to delegate the power of the government to an ethnic minority in, their, in, so to speak, their own country. What I think might happen is that there, there could be an ethnic solution in that ethnic groups live peacefully side by side and are allowed to retain their own culture and practice their own religion according to their own wishes. Rinchen Kando believes Tibetans will never give up hope about returning to their homeland. We believe we have hope. We believe we want to go back as soon as possible. We believe we have hope, not because of anything else, but because of the truth that the Tibetans are a nation with an identity of their own, with a culture of their own. Therefore, they have a right to live as a separate nation. And... Uh, regardless of who are on the top at that time. But the Tibetan people in general, as human beings, have the right to that. If we believe in the cause, we've got to go on fighting. And we have the energy to do that because of what has happened to our people in Tibet, because of what sufferings they had to go through, because of how much destruction that has taken place in Tibet, because of how much... Uh, because of how many people that have been killed and massacred and imprisoned and tortured. So, I mean, it could be Tibet today, but anyway, I think this sort of things, this sort of things should never happen. We Tibetans believe that we will be back in a free Tibet one day. If it happens very soon, wonderful, because we want that to happen as soon as possible because of several reasons. Firstly, Tibet is uh, becoming more and more populated by the Chinese population. And Tibetans are becoming a minority in our own country. The Tibetan environment is absolutely neglected, destroyed and exploited. And uh, more and more Tibetans are being imprisoned and tortured and, you know, maybe not in the same way as, say, in the early late 60s or early 70s but the same things are happening still in many more subtle ways so to end all these we want Tibet to be free as soon as possible but even if it doesn't happen as soon as possible that doesn't mean that we give up we will never give up until you know it happens Nari Rinpoche told me that in 1960 Ireland was one of three countries to support a UN resolution to help Tibet And because of this, the Dalai Lama has a fondness for Ireland. 
He encouraged me to ask for a private audience with his brother, and even though the Dalai Lama has a very busy schedule, a meeting was arranged. I had to submit my intended questions for approval and go through some formalities before meeting this famous world leader face to face. I bought a carter, a ceremonial white scarf that is presented when visiting important people. This I gave to him as I was ushered into a simply decorated room where he meets all his guests. He wore glasses and was dressed in traditional maroon robes. His head was shaved, and although he has a tangible, powerful presence, I was immediately put at ease by the warmth of his smile and his modest self-assurance. It was a delight to hear his wonderful laugh. He has some difficulty with English, and a few times during the interview, his interpreter helped out. I asked him to explain his way of looking at world issues, specifically in relation to non-violence, and how it affected his view of the situation in Tibet. Non-violence is my is a fundamental uh, belief. Now, recently, the uh, you know the like the event uh, in, in Middle East and also the South Africa. Now, these also they now I think some kind of uh, confirmation. confirmation is about the non-violence in the spirit of reconciliation. Uh, see, in in very complicated as a day, uh, situation, you see, can be can be can be adopted, can be useful. Now in in Northern Ireland also now you see the, uh, many people now is talking uh, peace and peace. These are I think the very very positive as a sign. Then naturally the one way now world becoming smaller and smaller. So naturally, they're heavily interdependent. So hardly no as the uh, independent interest of one's own community or one's own nation. So say my now, for example, is the even is uh, the my nation's interest very much related with my neighbor's is interest. So under such circumstances, as the practical thing is through non-violence. I mean, I mean, uh, one one way is that kind of situation heavily depend on one one another. Then, meantime, as a human being, uh, it bound to happen disagreement on different opinions and conflict. So, under such circumstances, is the only way or the uh, the method to solve these disagreement or these as the conflict through nonviolence. You cannot make as a clear sort of uh, distinction, they and we, their interest, my interest, very much mixed. Now sometimes, now you see this modern situation, now the word of they, now almost meaningless now. <laughs> Entire world is ah, that, that kind of situation, new situation, isn't it? So therefore, the non-violence is, I think, the... Uh, I think proper, if, if we think, you see, from the wider perspective, then the best way to solve human conflict or human disagreement is non-violence. Not everyone agrees with the Dalai Lama about the use of non-violence. Nair Rinpoche believes in the principle but feels in order for it to be viable, it must be understood by all involved. So in our case, I think the Chinese have nothing but contempt for non-violence. You know? Because they don't know what nonviolence means. 
and that they don't know the whole psychology of nonviolence, how noble it is, because they are used to glorifying violence. So they won't pay much attention at all. No. Then also, we have we should have an alternative which the Chinese could see. You know that we could use some other method, and but our option is to use nonviolence. Then the Chinese might get the message. Na Sang Siring, former Youth Congress leader, sees nonviolence as a noble policy, but unrealistic. I have always maintained that any and all means must be used to restore Tibetan freedom. And in our case, it is not only a question of freedom. It is also a question of survival. We are struggling to survive as a people and as a culture. And even in the Charter of the United Nations, the right of every individual and of every nation to defend themselves has been enshrined in that charter. We only ask of ourselves to take up this right to defend ourselves. We are not talking about terrorism in international uh, communities everywhere. We are only talking about defending ourselves and our people. is without doubt the linchpin of the Tibetans and clearly holds his people together. Now in his 60s, there must be some thought given to the future after his death. Rinchen Kando talked about her hopes for the future. Well, His Holiness is our, our leader, our teacher, and uh, he is also the reincarnation of Avalokiteshvara. There is no doubt about it as far as we are concerned. And it's very important for us that there be another Dalai Lama after he leaves this world. And uh, I really personally pray and hope that there will be another one, yet another one, and many more, so that through his practice and through his teachings, not only the Tibetans can benefit, but also many other people in the world by this, I don't mean to say that everybody should become Buddhist and listen to his teachings. I listen to many Christian teachings. I've been to churches when I was in school because that was one of our role. And I can remember I really enjoyed that. I learned so much from the churches. Therefore, I believe that there are other people who could also learn from the teachings of the Dalai Lamas. Therefore, I hope that there will be many more to come. But as far as the Tibetan political issue is concerned, as you know, now His Holiness the 14th or the present Dalai Lama has given a completely democratic system to the Tibetan people, which is being implemented in exile today, which he wishes that when Tibet becomes free, the people in Tibet will implement that, and which I believe that it should be done. And... Uh, and under a democratic system, however the country should function in the best possible way, I hope that happens to Tibet. And uh, if you ask me what the Tibetans would wish, they would all wish that His Holiness would still be the head, 
would still keep continuing guiding us. And on the other side, His Holiness wants us to be on our own and learn to walk and learn to run. And so this is His wish. Now, what the ultimate will be, we don't know. But I really wish that we will be able to implement and practice and uh, we'll be able to eventually make Tibet into one of the best democratic countries. I mean, this is my, my wish. Maybe it's too wild, but this is I, what I truly wish because I sincerely believe in the democratic system. And it really is wonderful because it gives every individual the opportunity and the right to say what they want, to do what they want, with the responsibility of doing something for the country and the people. So I think this should be really, this should be nurtured and this should be promoted. And in any country, if that happens, I think that's the most wonderful thing. drastically changes its current position, it's clear that Tibetans can't go back. The question is, can they survive the changes forced upon them by continued exile in a world where cultural individuality is valued less and less? From my experience, it's their tenacity and optimism that will carry them forward no matter what happens in the future. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.